The Utmost Island, Chapter 16 The storm at sea continued for three days after the Icelanders were driven from Greenland and Odin from Iceland. The escapes from death were so many and so close together that courage in meeting them became a habit. It was more surprise than relief when, on the morning of the fourth day, the storm suddenly stopped and went screaming away across the horizon. It left them alive and afloat, but in the Sea King's opinion, not much better for its absence, as it seemed to question to him whether it was worse to be wrecked or to drift aimlessly until they starved. None but he knew that they had no course, and he kept it to himself, merely telling the others to rest on their oars for a spell and let the sail do the work, as there might be a great deal of rowing presently. When they asked him, as he knew they would, where they were heading, he answered, westward, with an air of weary patience which implied that he knew what he was doing. As they could tell this was true by the sun, which was climbing over the clouds, and as they were so tired they would have taken almost anything for an answer, they asked no further questions and fell asleep on their benches. He took a common sense view, wherewith he justified his behavior. He had said his prayer to the gods. If Odin and Thor had a course for him to set, let them say so. It was their current which was pulling the ship to the west anyhow. He knew, that is, it was generally thought, that if they went on sailing westward, they would fall off the edge of the world. Into... into what? Straight into hell, perhaps. No one knew. No one had ever before been called upon to sail towards nowhere and away from everywhere. Westward it had to be. A great calm settled over the water, as overwhelming in its way as the storm had been. The wind stopped so completely that it seemed never to have blown. The sail sagged. There were no more great waves, just small, soothing ones that rocked the ship like a cradle, as if the gods were saying, Sleep. Sleep. It is in our hands now. The sun climbed higher and warmer, drawing the dampness out of them. Three days is a painfully long time to be without sleep. Ingolf's helmet felt very heavy. It made his head droop. He did not struggle to stay awake, but welcomed this drowsiness. In sleep, we get messages from such as cannot approach us when awake. He needed advice. Some kind. Any kind. There was no reason to stay awake. He had lashed his right hand to the tiller, and any movement of wind or water would rouse him. All his habits would be on guard. But his sleep was dreamless, except for his doubts and worries. The day was well advanced when he awoke, but even so he was the first to open his eyes. It was expected of him, and... Everyone else still slept in strange contorted postures sitting or lying, with their heads on one another's shoulders or laps or prone bodies. They were fairly dry by now, but stiff and wretched from their exertions and the uncomfortable way they were sleeping. Every now and then, one of them moaned and tried to shift the angle of his tormented neck. 
As if he'd never stopped thinking of it, the Sea King remembered what they would sooner or later ask him. Where? Where, where? They would be in no mood for half-answers. It was a satisfaction, at least, that the storm was unlikely to return. It had poured the very last drop of its watery blood upon them, and seemed anxious only to go back to its home and gain new life. He was glad of that. They could not have found the strength to fight it off again. But though Ajir and his brother had abandoned the struggle, the ice giants now joined it. A great fog, which is their breath, was floating towards the ship. There was an immense bank of it, drifting from the west, thick, perilous, looking like the white ghost of the black cliffs. Once it was about them, they would be able to see neither rocks nor any other enemy. The westward current held them, carrying them relentlessly into this blind, silent whiteness. The rowers were exhausted, beyond any possibility of struggling against it. The sail was limp and useless. In a few moments, they would be in the midst of it, helpless, being carried ever nearer to the edge of the world. When the fated time came for them to fall off, there'd be no warning, no chance to see it coming and sing a death song. His companions began to wake as the chill of the fog touched them. They sat up, unrefreshed, staring vaguely at the misty shroud which was enclosing them, feeling not as if coming out of sleep into wakefulness, but if moving out of one dream into another. They turned to their sea king to set their wits to rights. Where are we? Someone asked him. West of Greenland, he answered. They digested this for a moment distastefully. Their bodies were stiff and their spirits rueful, and the mention of Greenland brought back to their mind their defeat by the Skraelings, now shorn of vainglory. They tried to look through the fog, but it was growing too thick. They might have been anywhere. They felt confused, and that irritated them. How far west of Greenland? asked another. He replied, one night's rowing and one day's drifting. Was it coming now, the question for which he'd been waiting? It was all about him in the air, trying to be said. Where are we going? He almost said it himself, but resisted the impulse, and instead gave the order, out oars. The next moment they were rowing with the current, making great headway with little effort. Just as well, he thought noting the speed. Whatever is to happen, let it be soon. Bending their backs to the oars was painful at first, but it helped later. It limbered their stiffened muscles and offset the chill, and it took their thoughts off the subject he dreaded. But just as he felt safe, he heard someone ask it. Where are we going? But the question was not addressed to him. Turker had asked it, of the man who sat beside him and rowed with the same oar. His companion gave a little laugh, even as they rowed, and told him it was the business of the Sea King. Why don't you ask him? He finished slyly, 
and waited, grinning, for Turker to get into trouble. Turker seemed to fall into the trap and dared to question the ship's master. The Sea King had heard the whole thing and was ready for him. We're going westward, he said sharply. Tend your oar and leave the course to me. There was a laugh at Turker's expense as he learned his beginner's lesson. But the Sea King was not pleased. The danger was past for the moment, but the question had been uttered and would be remembered and asked again, perhaps not by a thrall. The fog clung to them through the rest of the day and all the night. They rode until morning, kept warm by the exertion. Now that the ship had steadied, the women managed to prepare some hot food. They could be seen in the glow cast by the fire of the ship's little oven, which they laboriously tended. Nothing else was visible in the darkness, and the illumined group of female faces became a point of fascination. The food was passed from hand to hand in the darkness. There were no tense feelings left. The fog lifted in the morning when the sun came up. They saw that they were still in a broad expanse of open sea. The all-night rowing had tired them, and, as before, the Sea King let them do their sleeping through the day while they drifted west, west, west. He himself slept a little, but was alert nonetheless, once more being the first to wake. Again, as evening approached, a bank of fog marched towards them and surrounded them, waking the sleepers with its chill, and again he ordered them to the oars in the night of rowing. The women had their duties arranged in a more orderly way by now, with the fire lit in the oven and supper prepared before darkness overtook them. During this, Turker spoke again to his companion at the oar, and what he said seemed to be a continuation of the previous night's question, as if there'd been no rebuff and no time between. Because, he said abruptly, if we don't know where we're going, he stopped with a semblance of reluctance. Yes? asked his neighbor, amused, and the rowers before and behind them listened as their bodies moved near with the motion of the oars. I was going to say, said Turk, that if we don't know, there's always one thing we can do. And what is that? We can go back to Iceland and throw ourselves on Olaf's mercy. The merriment ceased. No one thought this was funny. The man who rode with Turker moved slightly away from him and muttered something about a thrall being a thrall. Turker heard it and admitted humbly that it must be true. He seemed to be embarrassed and took enormous pains to excuse himself. He had bad habits, he said, which he'd picked up from the other thralls. He was not used to the company of free men. It had come into his head and he'd said it because to a thrall's mind it seemed a good idea. He would have to guard his tongue if he hoped to be worthy of his companions. His place was to listen and learn, not thrust himself forward. He hoped they would forgive him. Whether they did or not, he would never forgive himself. Yield to Olaf, indeed. He would die first. And so on, at such great length that he kept the suggestion alive that much longer by the device of continuing to cry it down. 
By the time he finished his show of contrition, they were sorry they'd made him feel so badly. One of them even said that Turker mustn't be too ready to condemn his own suggestion. Good ideas often sounded shocking at first, like cold water that feels warm after you swim in it for a while. Soon, Turker was the center of attention, standing higher than he had before, with everyone teaching him how to behave like a free man. That led to one of the bonders approaching the Sea King and hinting to him that he ought to set Turker free. It's uncomfortable, he said, to have one man along as a thrall, especially one whom everybody likes. When we start raiding, there will be slaves enough. I will think about it, said the Sea King, but he did not. What he thought about was that the notion of turning back had been suggested, had been said for the first time in the way that the question about their course had been asked, and by the same mouth. He must watch Turker. A slave's feelings, far from his own country, where he'd been free, slaves might have memories the same as men. He buried the thought at the bottom of his mind as he always did with what troubled him, and waited for the gods to make it blossom. Another night and day, and another, and another, all oddly the same, clear and pleasant after the sun rose, and then toward evening, the fog. They began expecting the fog, planning for it, working at the oars when it was upon them, sleeping in the sunlight when it was not. It was their main concern, around which all else moved. It ruled their lives. The Sea King wondered about the regular way it met them. It came from the west, always from the west, where there were no ice giants. Nothing was there but the edge of the world. It was that, and what it was thought to be, which led them at last to the moment he was dreading. Again, it was Turker's fault. Evening was coming on. No one could say whether it was evening of the 6th or 7th or 8th or whatever day, because they had lost count. And they were still rowing with that eternal westward current. The fog that was rolling towards them at this time was so dense that it seemed surely to portend something. Someone said, Greyfellow is in time for dinner again. Turker had been circumspect since his advice about turning back, and no one, not even the Sea King, had been paying special heed to him. Now he abruptly asked his neighbor another question, an apparently innocent one, asked with the reasonable air of one who merely seeks to increase his knowledge. If one were to go westward long enough, he asked, what place would he reach? Why, no place at all. He would fall off the edge of the earth. His neighbor stopped short realizing what he'd said, and Turker gasped, as if the reply surprised and shocked him. Others heard it too, and remembered, startled, that they'd heard it before. For a moment there was confusion as some of the oars fouled each other. Several men stopped rowing and spoke together in excited whispers. Then everyone stopped rowing, except Turker, who made a brave show of trying to handle his oar alone without his partner. Then he gave up the attempt, 
smiling apologetically at the Sea King, as though to say, it's too heavy for one man. All the crew were speaking now to each other, to the bonders, to the women, about the forgotten legend. No one would row another stroke. A few even made an effort to back, but the current was too strong. Then at last it came. One of the bonders did it with due regard for a sea king's position, but feeling it had to be done for the general good. Perhaps it would be best, he said, if you would tell us what course you are taking. Before the sea king answered, some had a horrid foreboding of what he was going to say and wished he wouldn't say it. But he did. Now that the moment was here, he was glad to have it over and done. He replied, very quietly and simply, I don't know. After that, nothing was said for a very long time. They were trying to understand all that his answer implied, each in his or her own way. The frog grew denser and chillier. They noticed it much more than they lately had, and huddled together here and there, seeming to form little groups, though really there were only two groups, the Sea King and everyone else. These two had suddenly become no longer the same, and now were facing each other. At last a man said, You don't know? No, he replied, and uttered the phrase yet once more. Then he explained what he meant and why he meant it. He was brief, truthful, and direct. They could no longer go to Greenland because of the Skraelings. They could no longer go anywhere else because of Olaf. They were in a trap because of himself. That was all. No excuses, no arguments, no pleas. He waited for them to say something if they wished. The bonder who had spoken to him before asked, Have you a plan? No, he answered. There is no plan to have. Well, what steps have you taken to save us? I have done all that I know, and since there are many things I do not know, I have prayed. What are you going to do now? Hope that good luck is with us. And if he is not? The Sea King was about to answer, I don't know, but he didn't, because at that instant something very strange went through his mind and put a different answer into his mouth. He said, so sharply that he startled them and himself too, Good luck is with us. He did not know why he said it, nor why he was so sure. From hoping Locke was with them to knowing he was, was an enormous step. Nothing had happened except the tiniest little breeze had blown for an instant, stirred the fog, and stopped. Assuredly, that brief flutter could not help them, for the sail again hung as limp as ever. But he knew he'd found what he was seeking, the way out of their difficulties. The gods had given him his answer. It was at the back of all his other thoughts, trying to hide from him, not yet clear enough for him to see its face, but he would. He would. He'd been trying to find it for days, and now his mind, 
his other mind had hold of it. But what was it? Why are you so sure Locke is with us? The bonder asked. Because tomorrow morning we will reach land. Everyone strained forward. The bonder was startled, for it had been said with an air of complete assurance. In that case, he began apologetically, almost ready to drop the subject. I thought the men seemed uneasy. I understand. Would you be willing to tell us what land it is? Gladly. Every breath was held. If I knew. Oh, there was disappointment again. Has anyone ever been there? I don't know. Then you've heard about it from your father, perhaps? No. From someone else? Nope. The disappointment grew into restlessness, almost into hostility. Then why are you so sure we will reach it? I don't know. The Sea King closed his eyes and motioned the bonder to silence. Let me think it out, he said. Without letting go of the tiller, he put his free elbow on his knee and rested his face on his hand. The bonder shrugged his shoulders helplessly turned from him and addressed the other men. I think, he said, we must hold a thing at once. He did not add, without our seeking. But that was understood. He went to the far end of the ship and the men followed him. One or two of the women made a move to go along, but the men who saw it shook their heads and they desisted. Turker did not even try to join them and no one invited him. The Sea King was left with the thrall and the women. But he did not notice where anybody was. His mind was full of the gods, wondering whether they were doing what he thought they were, from certain indications that were there for all to see, though only he had perceived them. It was dark by the time the thing ended and the men returned to the stern. One of them held a lighted torch which cast a huge halo in the fog above their heads. The Sea King's face was calmest of all as he waited for what they had to say to him. Their spokesman was the bonder who had convoked the thing. I will tell you what has been decided, he said. We can do nothing until daylight. But when the fog lifts in the morning, if we sight land, as you seem so sure we will, the Sea King nodded affirmation, why then, well and good. It will show that the gods are with us and that you have been doing their will. But if, when the fog lifts, there is no land, he hesitated, not liking to say it, that will mean the gods are displeased with us and that you've misled us. If that is what happens, we voted that you shall be sacrificed to Odin so we may regain his favor. After that, we shall take the advice which Turker gave the other day. We shall return to Iceland and throw ourselves on Olaf's mercy. We reached this decision after praying to Odin for guidance, and we trust him to soften Olaf's heart. I tell you that so that you may see we are only following the Allfather's counsel. I see several things, replied the Sea King. 
For one, I see you mean to tell Olaf I was to blame. The bonder was ashamed, but he tried not to be. The men feel that what has happened has been your fault. Let them remember that tomorrow when the fog lifts. You still believe we shall see land? I am sure of it. In the meantime, am I still sea king of this ship? No one else would take command at night and in fog. Do you want the men to start rowing? Not tonight. I do not wish to run upon land in the dark. That was the end of it, and it appeared to all that the Sea King had shown the best advantage. Some of them began to be sorry that they had rendered such a harsh verdict and almost wished they could unsay it, though none would be the first to admit having been wrong. They returned to their benches or lay down to rest, though they were too wrought up to be easy, or talked among themselves in an undertone as people talk when a man is dying and no one can help him. They eased their qualms by hoping that the Sea King would be proven right, though they were sure he would not, and saved their faces by keeping far away from him. All but Turker. He approached him, urged partly by curiosity, partly to be ready to shift his plans if need be, and a little by a wish to gloat. Why do you believe in Locke? he asked him. Because he has always stood by me, I think he will even give me back my son. But now? Turker insisted. Now? How can you think he is with you now? Because there is land less than ten miles away. Have you found out what makes you so sure? Yes. His certainty was impressive, and Turker was awed by it. He became less aggressive, more cajoling, as he asked, Will you tell me? Yes. There are three reasons why I know it. They've been in the darkness at the back of my mind, but the gods have just unlocked it for me to see. First, there's the current. A current does not run into land. It turns when it comes near land and runs beside it. The westward current, which has pulled us for days, has lately been turning a little to the south. Then there's the fog, which is the breath of ice giants. It's been getting thicker. We are coming nearer to the giant whose breath it is. And third, third, he smiled a little, a strangely tender little smile, the kind that goes with old, beloved memories. Early this evening, a little breeze found its way through the fog. All of you were excited and frightened from thinking about the edge of the world, so none of you noticed what I did about that little breeze. It brought me the faint, distant scent of a pine forest. Turker, no longer perceived by him, crept back through the darkness toward his companions, wondering whether he should tell them what he'd just heard. It would encourage them, revive their trust in their Sea King, make them readier to go on, harder to pull back to Iceland. But they would hear it anyway, so he'd better get the credit for having found it out. He must keep their esteem and await his chance. Then they would listen when he advised. Ah, his chance, his chance. When would it come? 
Patience, he told himself for the hundredth, the thousandth time. No trial is too great. To make himself endure yet once again, the thought of his own little boy, for whom he was doing this terrible, endless waiting. I must tell the others what I've learned, he admitted to himself, gloomily. But, O oh, ghost of Attil the Great, grant there will be no land when the fog lifts. Even had the crew not got into the habit of sleeping by day and rowing by night, there would have been no sleeping on this night. They were too excited, speculating over what the lifting of the fog would reveal. The Sea King's confidence had produced so marked an effect that many were wishing they had a good excuse to say they'd changed their minds. And when Turker repeated to them what he had just heard, they believed to a man that they would sight land in the morning. They even believed that they'd thought so all along and tried to outshout each other in claiming to have been in the believing minority. Their ready acceptance of the Sea King's reasons was not warranted. A westerly current may turn south for other causes than merely to run beside a body of land. A fog may rise from floating icebergs. As for the distant scent of a pine forest, there is a question how far that can be wafted, and besides, he may have imagined it. The best that could be justly said was that he might be right and might be wrong. But they now agreed with him more unreasonably than they had recently condemned him, since it was pleasanter to feel safe than frightened. They transferred their animosity to the bonder who had convoked the thing, mumbling that he would be a more fitting sacrifice to Odin than the man they'd voted should be. Soon they were saying they should take another vote and undo the first. The Sea King, however, overheard this and inveighed against it sternly. You've made a bargain with Odin, he reminded them and you must live up to it. Odin is not to be cheated. He will have his sacrifice if he wants it, no matter what you decide or how many votes you take. The only thing that is in your power to do is show good faith. As some of them were still inclined to risk the anger of the gods, he saw that it was his duty to convince them, so he told them the story of Vikar. He was a host king, was Vikar who commanded many men and had many victories and successful raids which brought him wealth and fame. He made a great show of saying that Odin helped him win, but in his heart he thought it was his own doing. He praised Odin only to make his men more ready to die in battle, since they would do more for the god than for the king. On one of his raids, he decided that they would draw lots to see who would be sacrificed to Odin never thinking in his pride that it would fall to himself. But the Allfather arranged that it turned out thus, and when it did, all became silent, no one daring either to say the king must die or that the god must be cheated. It was decided to meet again the following day and think about it in the meanwhile. During the night, Odin appeared to one of the men, whose name was Stark, and said to him, at your birth, I was your foster father and have watched you ever since. Will you admit that you have been fortunate in everything you have undertaken? Stark thought a moment and then agreed that he had never been poor, unloved, or defeated. 
Very well, foster son, said Odin. Then it is your turn to help me. You must get Vicar for me tomorrow. And he explained to Stark how it was to be done. When the meeting was held the next day, Stark said to Vicar, The proper course for us to follow, King Vicar, in order that we may neither offend Odin nor lose you, is to go through all the motions of sacrificing you without really doing so. That is excellent, assented Vicar, but I do not see how it is to be done. Stark thereupon showed him two articles which he carried in his hand, a small piece of string tied to a twig and a reed. We will pretend, he said, that the string tied to a twig is a gallows and the reed is a spear. I will put the string around your neck and touch you with the reed. Then Odin will be satisfied, for we shall have gone through the form of sacrifice to which he is accustomed. Vikar looked at the small objects and thought they were so harmless that even Odin could not harm him with them. So he allowed Stark to put the string about his neck. Then Stark touched him with the reed and said, I give you to Odin. At once, everyone saw that they'd been the victims of an illusion, that the reed was really a spear which pierced Vikar's body, and that the string and twig were really a gallows, for they saw Vikar hoisted up by them above the ground, where he died. The death of Vikar shows that we cannot escape the will of the gods, for this world is otherwise than as they let us see it, full of traps of which we are not aware until we are caught in them. The Sea King's telling of this tale, and his willingness to lose his life if Odin pleased to take it, made the listeners admire his pure, simple faith, and be sure than ever that he would be rewarded for it by finding land the next day. Many who had not gone into a temple in years vowed that they would be more religious in the future, and would sacrifice regularly to whichever of the gods they had been neglecting. And, as they felt this surge of increasing piety, the first light of morning shone through the fog. Thank you for listening, friends. Good night.